Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. I'm filming this intro in my yard because it's very hot and this is a shady uh, and breezy place. So if you hear any birds or whatever, that's, that's what you're hearing. Uh, anyway, today's episode is my conversation with Donna Thomas. Donna Thomas wrote uh, a really interesting article for the website Essentia Foundation, which is uh, an initiative by Bernardo Castrup and others, uh, basically um, just examining uh, their idealist um, philosophy and worldview. And Donna wrote an article on children and non-ordinary experiences and the child's experience of self. And as a dad of three kids, that has been on my mind a lot for several years, just seeing uh, the way, especially infants, but young children as well, just don't necessarily experience that very rigid sense of self that, um, that adults experience. And so Donna has worked with a lot of children who have non-ordinary, non-ordinary experiences, things that would be considered paranormal um, by an adult, um, which children have in kind of a not very analytical way, um, you know, things like premonitions and, and talking to dead relatives and things like that, that um, there's not really much template and often not much societal um, help for those children in, in interpreting what has happened to them. And so um, Donna also works with Rupert Sheldrake, so she was just a great thinker. If anything, this conversation, uh, I was just so interested in all of her thoughts and her ways of thinking that uh, I, I wished it kind of could have gone on quite a bit longer. So I'm hoping to do another episode, maybe where we dig into more of the specifics of uh, the non-ordinary experiences of children. But at any rate, as a discussion of, of consciousness and children and, and uh, just the idea of non-ordinary experiences, uh, I really enjoyed this. And yeah, I'd like to speak with Donna again at some point. So I hope you enjoy it. Please like and subscribe and hit the bell to be notified about future conversations like this. And thanks for watching. Donna Thomas, welcome to Morning Talk Show. <laughs> thank you, Thank you, you. It's a thank you for being to here. Be here. Good, thank you. Uh, and I'm sorry for talking over you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I talk to a fair few people in the UK, but I never get tired of the of the lovely accents. <laughs> Can you guess mine? Oh my goodness. Uh, I'm, I'm not good with that. Yorkshire? <laughs> I have no idea. Neely. Neely. Lancashire. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, it's near Manchester. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if it was Game of Thrones, we'd be the wildlings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I actually did find a, a site the other day for um, various uh, various British accents and little recorded snippets of them. And I thought that would be kind of an interesting thing to know because I'm, I'm an Anglophile by, by nature. And I don't know why, I don't know why a lot of the people who I end up like getting really excited about like yourself and finding fascinating are tending to be in England and, and Europe. I don't know if it's a coincidence or, or what, even though, even the last American I spoke to lives in, in Europe. Um, so or lives in England. So I don't know. Well, that's it's great. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cause I think the UK is going through a bit of a tough time at the moment. So 
Yeah, well, parts of it at least, you know. Right. I kind of wonder if cultures, you know, I mean, no, I don't wonder. I know that cultures suffer in different ways from each other. And so uh, while the U.S. is definitely suffering in Canada in their own way, England is England suffers in a different way. And that means that there would probably be healthy pockets of thought and culture that maybe haven't been discouraged there in the same way that they may have been discouraged in America yeah. or something. There's a, there's a real rattling for me at the moment of Western ideals. And if you think about our countries, they're, they're very much based on that. And I think as painful as it's been, um, and of course there's been a huge amount of suffering, I, I think a large part of that is because our sense of everything is being shaken up. And a large part of that is is our Western ideals about who we think we are and mm -hmm. the, the way that we live our lives and and the social systems and so so yeah I think there's something there you know mm -hmm. I do wonder with with other cultures in other parts of the world whether they've been so rattled mm. with, with all the things that have been going on so yeah a lot of cultures. Um who seem very westernized probably still have a pretty deep uh subcurrent of some of their um previous ideas that maybe is helping is helping them yeah and and this is this is maybe a slightly politically incorrect but i also think a certain amount of discomfort like we are almost too comfortable i don't want to phrase it in terms of other countries and say i'm glad that they're that they suffer. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think that part of part of what we see, part of the, the total immaturity about what a human being is that we see comes from just being comfortable and not being challenged, not having our, our ideas challenged for so long. Absolutely. And there's an element of dependency in that as well. And for me, that's partly the way that systems are set up in the mm. sense of the expert culture and you know, we can tell you what to do and we can tell you how things are from from your body to your soul, to mm. your mind, education, religion, health. Um, and I don't think that ser has served us very well. Mm -hmm. And and I think, and again, these are things that have been um, cracked open slightly. Yeah. And, Inevitably, with that, if your self sense of self is invested in that, which for a lot of us it, it can be, if especially if we're very much in these systems, then then that's going to create suffering. But hopefully, mm -hmm. it may lead to this idea of of being more um, reliant on each other, not self like, but you know, relying on each other. Mm. You know, connected. You connected. That's yeah. the word. Yeah. Yeah. No, I fully, man, I love that. Uh, uh, even just in that little, little bit of speech you just did, there were so many jumping off places, uh, uh, which is wonderful. And, and one of the things that I wanted to say is that, um, right off the bat is that I would identify you as someone who is living the, um, the solution to some of these problems for us, because you mentioned the, um, culture of, of expert opinion and and uh, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it but then that's what I that's what I love about your type of research because and and about your specific research because you are a PhD like you are 
an expert, you would have the right to jump into the listen to the experts uh, milieu that's just become like a default unquestioned thing as though expertise can't mislead, you know? Uh, and, and so I think, I think you're living that. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And, I, but I, th I think that sometimes it's, it's useful to be there to challenge it in a way. And, and part of moving that expert culture, not so much to the professionals and the systems is trying to shift that to people themselves. Mm. And that's the nature of the research is these, these very strong arguments for um, bringing in different approaches to research that, that, are, that are very much looking at the experiential authority of people mm. and their experiences because experiences are immeasurable in a way and, and our, our scientific systems are all about validity and reliability and what can be measured and counted. Mm -hmm. But if we're trying to really explore experience and, and self and what it means to be human, although science is really useful and a, and a wonderful thing, it, it, it needs that as well. And, I, and that's where that's hopefully where my research sits rather than. Yeah. Well, no. well, describe describe your research in your own words then so that we can go start from there, because I've been looking into it, uh, you know, online with your article on Essentia Foundation and then on your own website. Um, but uh, for the sake of this conversation um, and me, uh, how would you describe what you're what you're up to? Oh, I'll try. So there's, there's three there's three aspects to the to the work that I do. So so one is academic in my academic role. Um, one is as, as an independent researcher that's that's working with other people now, which is wonderful. So it's quite interdisciplinary. And then there's a voluntary aspect to that. So I'll, I'll start with the academic. So it, it's very much about exploring the nature of self and experience. So, you know, when we research with, with people, we very much take for granted that we know who we are researching with. So who is the subject of experience? And in social research, they tend to be categories. So children or women or men or disadvantaged communities and, and so on and so on. Uh, but we never really ask the important question, which is who, who is it that we're asking? And and the knowledge that we gain, which is data in social science, and, and it's normally through narratives, where is that knowledge coming from? Well, nine times out of 10, it's coming from the story self, from that conceptual sense of self, or our stories about ourselves, And then that's taken to be this experiential authority. Um, so it's about, it's about challenging that and saying, well, okay, we need to go back to ontology. We need to actually, you know, what are we looking at? Who are we asking? What does it mean to be human? What kind of experiences are we excluding? But also, how are we misinterpreting experiences as well? Um, and especially when we're researching with children and young people, because, you know, at the moment in the UK, and, and then I'm assuming a lot across a lot of the Western world, we have a massive mental health crisis, children's mental health crisis. I think there was something like 350,000 uh, in 2019 in the UK were accessing mental health services with only one in five getting any help. And that's not counting the rest of children and young people who are suffering on 
at the level of mind uh, and emotion as well. So we clearly have a problem where, or an issue where um, children and young people are, are having experiences that are very unsettling, but adults in authority are immediately labeling that as illness. And there's no space to maneuver. So our natural human emotions, such as sadness, um, anxiety, which are emotions that we all have, are immediately diagnosed, medicated, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And in one of the studies that I've done with children and young people, in that study, they talked about a lot of experiences, speaking with dead grandparents, having lucid dreams, having premonitions, hearing very helpful voices. And this was all good for them until an adult told them that that's not normal and you must be ill. So in a way, catalyzing suffering. Yeah. So the research is really important for a challenging um, how we do research with people, how we how we come to it as an expert, thinking that we know and assuming who they are and mm. where that knowledge is being generated from. So it's trying to bring ontology back into social science and social research. But it's also really important for us to explore what these experiences are. Um, mm. Not, I'm not. We're not asking: Are they valid? Are they real? Because they're very real to these children. But it's what can they teach us about the nature of self and mind, and, and what it means to be human, and the nature of reality. Mm. So that's the academic side. Um, the independent side is it's um it's now starting to branch out from that and work with others. So at the moment. Um, I'm doing a, a bit of work with Rupert Sheldrake, which is really lovely. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He's my, he's one of my favorite people in the world. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. I can understand why I can, yeah. I can understand that. And well, well, Rupert has a history of, of doing experiments, um, you know, with people around the sense of being stirred at. And in, in one of the first pilot studies that I did, um, that was really highly reported by children and young people. Mm. Um, and, and it's that common that I didn't, I didn't actually latch onto it. So I was really interested in these other experiences and I completely missed the point of, you know, when the children and young people saying, yeah, I'm always getting a sense of being stirred at and I turn around and actually someone's looking at me. And then that there was also incidents of, you know, I can be alone and I'm still getting this sense that I'm being looked at. And it didn't mm. occur to me because it, I don't know if you've had that, Aaron, but I know I've had that so many times. And it's so common that it just went right over like this. Mm-hmm. And then um, someone who I know said, you know, well, actually, Rupert's looking at that. And and that's how that kind of emerged. Um, and on the website, we'll have a questionnaire soon. So that will be coming up. Um, mm-hmm. Some exciting stuff there. Um, and some cyber, some cyber ethnography as well, because young people are actually online on things like TikTok doing their own experiments. So they're actually coming together and doing experiments around things like lucid dreaming. Really? And yeah, there's, there's lots of it going on. So there's, there's this organic movement also in young people who are really interested in these experiences and they're actually off doing their own experiments. So it's, you know, having a look what's going on there. And so. Wow. Well, all, all so great. 
I can't. I cannot say I'm surprised to hear that you're working with Rupert Sheldrake because everything you've said and everything I've read fits so nicely into uh, the things that he um, talks about. Um, so yeah, that's. I think that's all really wonderful. I love that it's happening with children, um, and I think it's it's such a shame that it, it, we kind of. I think as adults, we kind of. Um, some of our, our approaches to children's thoughts and experiences are, are, are the equivalent of, well, I had to do this when I was a child and you have to do it too. You know, you know, like you have to get, get yourself mature as though, as though maturing, this is like the word maturity has like really started to be coming to, to question in my mind, right? Because maturity is seen as being placid and, um, and pretending to understand by default what a human being is, right? Because it is it is very much pretending, and it is very much um, being comforted by a, a, a narrative that lets you believe that you understand the world around you. That that's what I find. There's comfort in it. And when people say they can't, like, so I think like things like um, like transgendered people who are um, really pushing beyond the um, the boundaries of what they're told they have to be, um, you know. I think that that's really fascinating and interesting. And a lot of people preclude themselves from that situation, but uh, or like preclude themselves from the discussion. But at the same time, it is so traumatic for them to hear that their understanding of the world was wrong. Because when your understanding of something so fundamental was uh, is being, you know, if, if that were to be wrong, maybe the whole thing would explode and you see society resisting, you see society resisting even the conversations. Uh, yeah. so yeah. And it, and it brings a tremendous amount of suffering to children and young people when they're, they're, they're having a sense, it's a sense of self that goes beyond personhood and anything that goes beyond personhood is then seen as, as not normal or abnormal and right. yeah, and I've been having some conversations with young people who identify as non-binary, and it and it's very interesting because you know I, I I explore gently with them, you know what what does that mean, and um and it is very much a sense of I'm I'm not that and I'm not that, and right. I don't know what it is, but I, yeah. I'm just there, and it and it moves and it changes. And it, it's very similar to, so in some of the work I've done, I've looked at peak experiences with young people as well, where they have, they've had an experience where their personal sense of self has dissolved mm. and they are one with the universe. And it's a very similar thing. And, you know, when I was a child, I had two experiences of this. I was in, when I was five, I was run over. And then oh. when I was 15, I was in a, very serious car crash and in sorry what was the second age i think zoom cut out oh i was 15 okay 15 and i myself had an experience um where i was in a very serious car crash and and i had a huge experience as the car was turning over um where i was i was just wasn't in the car and i was everywhere and i was everything i had a, a mini life review but the most striking thing was that I still carry with me, even through this research, is I was not a 15-year-old girl anymore. 
and there were no words to say you know what I was but I was all and everything and and these peak experiences they're all very very similar when a child or young person has gone out of those boundaries in some way and then struggles to reintegrate because I struggled tremendously after that to kind of reintegrate into this idea of normality that we all have and Mm. And I feel that that's a huge issue. Mm. And of course, people were probably trying to tell you that it was the car crash. It was the trauma of the car crash that you were uh, experiencing rather than the trauma of reentering into the ego self or whatever. That's really interesting. Absolutely. That's what, and it's that adults in, in, in authority because, you know, children are always in this, um, there's always an imbalance of power with uh, re- obviously with adults and children. So mm-hmm. immediately, even that face or that expression or that reaction, when we don't know how to, to listen to that or understand that immediately it does something right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. we, I mean, in the research we try to address and rebalance that power. And we, you know, we, we use something called participatory research and, it, it, it is moving away from that idea of subject and object. So uh, I'm the researcher and you're the object, but it's, mm. it's bringing children and young people to, to more to be core researchers in that process mm. instead of you're just researching on them. Interesting. So there must be a lot of psychology involved in, in how you phrase things and even a fairly uh, embodied sense of how you must approach uh, you know, and set up a research area and uh, like what what kinds of things, what kinds of ways do you break down that uh, researcher subject distinction? Yes. And it's, it's very challenging. And, you know, I, I think it's nigh on impossible to do that completely. Um, but, well, I've been experimenting with something called self-inquiry research technique and it's, it's from the Eastern traditions and it's from, you know, from approaches that, you know, teachers use now in the, non, in the non-dual circles. Mm. But it, it's trying to harness that idea of looking at your own inner story and looking at the objects in here and, and, and then representing who you are and what your experiences are. And it's carefully creating them holding spaces and also bringing other things into research like art, like movement. If Mm. I'm working with with very young children, we'll have toys and we'll use, you know, small world figures. So, you know, we have to remember that a lot of these experiences, we don't have words for them. So, you know, if we think about people who have near-death experiences, they can't explain everything because it we you know language is extremely limited yes yeah. very dual and 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 many of their experiences go beyond that duality but we we're finding that art is really helpful and the other interesting thing about art is when children and young people are trying to represent a sense of self in in those expanding moments they're they're, they're coming up with a lot of geometrical shapes and geometrical patterns Mm. and that's really interesting because that's the universal symbol of the self if you think Mm. about Jung and if you think back to um the cave paintings and and the old pictures it it, I don't know what it is yet Aaron but 
I'm still looking at that, but there's something tying in there that's really interesting mm. about geometric shapes and, and how that's representing a sense of self that's beyond that. Yeah. You know, I'm Donna and I'm Aaron and I'm this and I'm that. Yeah. What I find with my uh, with my children and, and my daughter especially, and I know both of them did this, uh, she, but I'm thinking more recently I've seen my daughter. Uh, she's five. Uh, just fill a page right up with things like, you know, uh, now she's representing, she's almost always drawing people, but for quite a long time because her brother drew and she would just draw and she would fill the page up and it's actually surprisingly balanced. Like, you know, cause I've got enough visual sense to see that a page is not, is balanced. Like she, she would fill the whole page and there'd be a big circle and there'd be swoops and and spaces would get filled in with things and there was a definite sense of being done with it like you know there was a definite sense of purpose when she was doing it and then a definite sense of it's finished now and i i'm just so yeah i'm so curious what that what is encoded in things you know cuz art and music music is my big thing and there's so much encoded into the music. Forget the words, you know, the words, words can be amazing too, but yeah, like what, what is it? And, and I think children experience it very directly. Like even in the, even in the fact that children know exactly how they want to dance to a song when it comes on and it may, and it's like, if you've been watching them, it's probably a dance they've never done before because they've never heard that song before. And like, you know, everybody's different, right? I think everybody's level of embodiment might be different. But um, if you have a kid who is quite um, expressive in movement, then you will see when the music changes, their their little butts move in a different way. And I think, yeah, it's just so, it's so wonderful to think that that we might start taking a, uh, a careful and a, as scientific as possible approach to to figuring out what's going on there absolutely and you know when when we don't have words for experiences you know there is something about embodiment but there's also something about creativity in that and you know if we think about where does creativity come from what is very um intuitive you know it's it's a it's a different kind of expression yeah. and you, know, you were saying about your, your daughter it just kind of goes like this and it's just there mm -hmm. and the symbols like the circles are interesting because it's that idea of the universal symbols as well which mm. which is really interesting that that ties in for me you know i'm quite interested in the, the idea of the of the collective consciousness as well and 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 i think things really do tie in with the idea of the universal symbols you know, for an example is, you know, something I've been thinking about recently is that there's a there's a large number of children who have, um, you know, who are being diagnosed with OCD. So this idea of these repetitive thoughts, but if you look at OCD, they are the same themes. There's, there's something like four or five themes that are universal if you are experiencing this thing. And it's it's mm. massive universal thing, themes like... Um, you know, religion, or, um, you know, a sense of hurting someone. And it, it, it's almost, you know, it, they're very young, these children, and it's kind of, where is it coming from? You know, what are they hooking into? What's what's going on? 
so that you know some and i, I don't want to say too much about that because i've not done any research on that but that's more for me that's more coming from an intuition of of what right. i'm listening to and hearing right. because not only do i do the academic research there's, there's the voluntary side where you know we have the website and we're trying to create a space where because one of the the other issues is that children and young people don't have spaces to share these kinds of experiences that are very common you know whether it's a lucid dream or whether it's uh, they have mediumship or they're showing these mediumship capabilities or you know whatever these things are I, there's there's no space to share and come together with other children mm-hmm. and young people who may be having the similar experiences mm-hmm. and and you hear a lot of you know I'll say anecdotal but I'm using that word with the greatest of respect. You know, I don't mean it in the sense of, well, it's not data because it absolutely is for me. And it's one of the strongest forms of data that we could have around any of this work for me. Um, But, you know, you're just hearing it all the time. Right. All the time. But it's data. It's data that involves the scientist becoming an intuitive, uh, almost a medium in, in in yourself, the scientist becoming an, uh, an intuitive receptor of, uh, this anecdotal data. You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah, well, so one of the, so we have something called reflexivity in social research practice. If, you know, if, if you, if you're approaching your research from no research is objective, you know, all research has degrees of subjectivity, but it's, I think it's more difficult in social research with people to to have those levels of what you'd call objectivity. So reflexivity is a very good way to approach research by always being self-reflexive of where are you as the researcher, where are you coming from? So, um, and I'm trying to uh, write about something called transpersonal reflexivity at the minute. So a really good example is, so I told you about one of my childhood experiences so I've got to be really careful that I don't kind of storm in there thinking, well, I know what that is because I've had that. Mm. So that wouldn't be good research practice. So I have to be mindful with myself and, and be very reflexive. Look at what's going on there. What's my story? You know, what knowledge am I coming from? Mm-hmm. Let's drop that. Let's try to be more aware and, and just, you know, and let the information come. So, Mm-hmm. It's always about negotiating that reflexivity in the research practice. Mm-hmm. And also in a way, letting the child or young person lead on, on what's coming there, what whether it's creatively or whether it's through a narrative, you know, whether whether it can be expressed in, in the more traditional ways as well. And it's not about getting rid of the traditional ways, it's about bringing them together. Right. That, that's really important. Right. The, the stereotype I have in my mind of, of scientists and intuition is that scientists um, are to be intuitive, like in the extreme when making a theory, and then all intuition must go for during the research or, or something like it's that's that's a that's a harsh that's too harsh of a way to describe it because Certainly, I'm sure that all researchers, when they're actually researching, no matter how committed they are to a sort of object objectivity, they would all adjust the, you know, ad- adjust as they go. But what you're talking about is, is beyond that. Uh, and, and really, it, it's almost on a spiritual level, uh, like that the scientists must, 
Like, in other words, um, sorry, I'm grasping at, at things that are in the fog here for me. Um, but uh, that researchers in these situations couldn't be interchangeable in in really uh, you know like uh like okay you know i've set out the parameters of this test now you know random scientists off the street come in and do the test like you, it's sort of not does that make sense yeah kind of yeah i mean of course <laughs> you've got to have some framework and yeah and in, and in academia especially you've got to have your theoretical frameworks and you know, we have to go through very strong ethics and, and these kinds of things. So, you know, there is a frame that you work from. But, you know, there is something really nice happening as well in social science at the moment, which is there's a lot of theory coming in from quantum physics and mm. and 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 uh, from Deleuzian philosophy, which which is, is starting to kind of talk about the idea that human beings are assemblages of things so, so we're not fixed at all and that we're always just an assemblage of, of everything that's in our moment. So this table, this laptop, you know, I can't be me without you being here in this moment now. So, so everything is, is completely interconnected in a way. And it's, that's really helpful to start to kind of challenge things, but it also makes it really tricky in terms of, well, if we're coming to it from that ontology, you know, how, how do we frame it then? And and how is that fitting in with these really rigid systems that we have to work in? So I, I think there's a, there's always that balance, Aaron, of the systems that you're working in and then trying to do that. in it. You know, I refer to them as research moments. Mm. So, yes, you have a frame and you have an idea and you, you may have a, a couple of questions, but... It, it's what what's emerging in those research moments and especially with the work that I've been involved with because it is an unknown you know it's it is an unknown to to go in with children to talk about the, this, these matters as well mm. and it has to be done in a way where it isn't triggering um, right you know there's a lot of safeguarding involved because you know many of these children have been told you know you're schizophrenic or you're this or you're that and they have a very good sense, well, I'm not. This is this is who I am and this is what happens and I'm okay with it. Mm. But they're being told. So, you know, you, you need a lot of sensitivities and, and I guess a lot of experience because I've been researching with children for 18 years now and I think that's that's been extremely valuable in mm. trying to make sense of this and, and think about how do we research these topics with children and young people, especially the younger ones. When you talk about a research moment, is that does that imply that there are moments where you're technically um, in a research, you're technically doing research, but the research moment hasn't happened yet? Like you have all these kind of moments that, like, aren't research moments, even though you're you're attempting to get a research moment. I think it's more about the openness of the research activity in a way. So. Um, once the research starts, it, it is research unless the, the child or young per person says, I've had enough of this now, because that, that's the role in consent idea, the idea that children and young people can say, okay, I've had enough now, and, and that's that's fine. But when you are experimenting with a research method, so, you know, imagine it, it is an art, um, and, and you've given 
or you're facilitating an idea so okay you know you've told me that you've you've had a near-death experience and you've also told me that there's no words and you, you can't explain that so you know shall we try and shall we use these materials and see if we can represent that and and that's the moment because it's an unknown and you are almost a witness to see what emerges in that research moment so it's not tightly framed you know and you and you could have so like i'm thinking now of some of the experiments that i'll be doing as part of rupert's work because we're getting uh, we're trialing kind of a parents as researchers approach which is something i've done before which is getting parents involved oh. and 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 then practicing reflexivity and things like that but you know so for those experiments they'll be very fixed in a way so it's a very clear very kind of very simple but a clear experiment where stand behind the child there's a series of random tests uh, and you know how many times will the child guess when, when they're being stirred at by the parent or the, or the mm. peer and when they're not so they've got very clear boundaries and and it's very clearly defined but I think when you're researching with uh, around experience and especially experiences again that are beyond personhood it is not defined and we shouldn't define it we shouldn't we should have the courage to be open to allowing those research moments and learning from that and what comes up and then how do we collect that data mm. but also how do we understand that data and that's where the interdisciplinary work comes in because then okay we, well, we might need to borrow from depth psychology we might need to go to quantum physics we might need to go um and and that's why i've been very fortunate as well because we are hoping to do this internationally um, and also look at the cultural aspects of this and involve some children from indigenous communities mm. so we you know we have got um i'm trying to develop a kind of a network of experts so we have people like max fellmans and who's 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 big in consciousness and david luke mm. uh the psychologist um okay. and jasmine puratek who's you know an expert in indigenous uh, communities and young people and mm. it's about bringing all that together because not not one discipline I think can address um, the nature of self uh, and these these experiences that we have. Right, because ostensibly, uh, you know, human beings all over the world are born with very similar hardware, and yet all of these different ways of viewing self are coming up. So there's almost like uh, there's almost like. A, there must be a bigger self that we don't know about. Otherwise, there couldn't be all of these diverse expressions of what self means. You know, like in indigenous co communities in Canada, they've had the idea of being two spirited for quite a while. Um, you know, have and 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 Western culture is just now trying to uh, trying to integrate that in some way and 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 things like that. So that's really interesting. Yeah, um, and I think, and you're hitting on ontology there as well, Aaron, and it is really interesting because, you know, we have this assumption about, you know, the nature of reality at the moment that that I that I think is causing a lot of problems. It is trying to say that, you know, we're limited and we're separate and we're all individuals. But if we if we go to to people's experiences, their experiences are not saying that. So mm. there's something about maybe developing ontology from people's experiences 
but also looking at what ideas are out there that can explain really well how people experience self. I mean, again, in the work that I do, children have experiences that show that they're very connected in very subtle ways, um, whether it's telepathy or, you know, empathic abilities to other people. But also when we do the self-inquiry activities, um, many of the children, young people, they drop to this level of self where there is absolutely no words. So silence actually becomes data in a way and, and mm. they've shifted and they're all kind of the same, that they're all sensing self in the same way, which again, you know, do we have a shared subjectivity? Do we have this, this core shared sense of self? And that's why I'm, you know, really interested in the work of people like Bernardo Castro, who is, is incredible in terms of the, you know, the, the analytical idealism, because it provides a way, because it's so rigorous, it, it can provide a way for academics in other disciplines to, to begin to talk about these things that we've, we've been seeing for a while. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Because I, I feel like there is a, you mentioned ontology. I feel like there's also an, an epistemology issue. Um, and I recently recorded an episode trying to tease this out with someone um, just that, that our, our basic, um, our basic idea of what knowledge is has become very um, closed and very data driven um, and not, and doesn't include the products of our intuition until we can explain not only explain them but then fit them into an, a narrative and then their knowledge only then only when we can write them down by by which point they you know they, they might be fairly dead because they can only say that one thing you know like whereas this almost like this personality that, that we didn't even know was coming towards us or this this being was coming towards us in the form of intuition and we turned it into one thing we wrote it down and now it's knowledge and I don't know, like that, that troubles me. And I, and, and I really would love to know how, how we kind of, um, how we communicate to the broader world. I'm really glad that people like Bernardo Castro and yourself are doing these things that help, uh, that help scientists and that help people move into, um, move towards, uh, science that is 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 examining these things, which are so hard to examine and so hard to quantify. And one of the things that comes to mind is we've got this modernism, postmodernism yeah. divide. And I think on a natural level, I'm I lean towards postmodernism, but there's this there's this odd there's this there's a total denial of the idea of what I would call a transcendent self or something like that's beyond uh, beyond our control, but is still ourselves. There's such a denial of it that when people hear post, uh, any postmodern ideas, they immediately translate it into, um, well, that means you're just, you think you can just decide who you are. You can just make up whatever and, and go from there. And, and, and that's obviously unwise and that's obviously patently untrue. But then on the other hand, you see um, how in a modernist society and, and, and modernism and industrial revolution leading to um, leading to um, kind of this age that we're in now, you see that people are, we're thinking of human beings as very hackable and manipulatable. Um, and, 
And you see that the most successful people in manipulating the human being are people who want, or sorry, sorry, not, I'll take away the manipulating word. The people who are most successful at influencing human beings are actually people who want to sell things and people who want to uh, manipulate and control the outcomes of, of things and, and control your behavior. Like social media has been extremely effective in manipulating uh, people and and they've they've taken the reins of people's sense of reality and they've used that literally to to get ad clicks to get people to click on ads so it's kind of i think that the elephant in the room is that there is something there that these nefarious people <laughs> have identified and are using and that other disciplines aren't and can't like re religions have become increasingly incapable of of influencing people to in the way that they might want to you know there i would say they're objectively less successful especially christianity in the west less successful than advertisers uh at at actually getting people to do to do things is this saying anything yeah. to you or am i just on a tear no, no absolutely and you know and i I have to, I do have an issue with postmodernism in the sense that um, there's so much emphasis on the discursive and the idea. Import for me, it, my understanding of postmodernism is the idea that um, it's very much about identity, but it's very much about that discursive construct. You know, that's that story self, and and I think you're absolutely right, Aaron. And, and I think the way that um, there is a sense of maybe manipulate, yeah, absolutely manipulation and control is that, you know, our inner narratives are very entangled with the grand narratives of institutions, whether it's media, whether it's health. And, you know, it, it, it's a type of coercion, it's a type of power. And we are, so I said, well, so when, if we only know ourselves to be our story I, to be our conceptual sense of self, we are very tangled up in the institutions and, you know, they can very subtly um, promote ideas. And because we're so tangled up in that, we can become very conditioned by those ideas. And I think that's a huge part of it. So in social research, if we're always looking to talk to the conceptual self, the conceptual I, you, what the data that you're getting is a very conditioned data it's all very conditioned it's it, it isn't about self it's about that identity construction that's very much related mm. to postmodernism and the idea that reality is discursive is the information age and yes mm. we have an identity and yes it's fluid but it's very much integrated into social roles into a social yeah. reality without even asking what is what does what is social reality well it's a shared consensus of ideas for me, it's a shared dream. You know, that's that's the way I think about it and, and experience it a lot of the time as well. So mm -hmm. I do, there is a problem. And in terms of epistemology, for me, the problem is where knowledge is generated from, and it is from the, 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 the concepts. Mm. Um, yeah. And more often than not, um, the, the institutional concepts and ideas that mm -hmm. are very yeah. much ingrained in our own conceptual senses of self yeah i think there's not i agree and i think there's not enough um in my opinion 
acknowledgement of those times when we discover knowledge or when we realize knowledge in ourselves like you know that's that's a big thing there's this this notion of of self-creation and even even a western kind of ideal of 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 hard work in self-creation you know the you know the real I, I always picture sculpting myself from stone, you know, uh, that's the, that's what I, that's the ideal that it's just supposed to be there. There's supposed to be this supreme effort, which clearly these children have not done. Right. And so the disrespect for the, for children is, is a lot of it is in the fact that we want to aggrandize the work that the work that we have done, you know? And so I think, I think we need, you know, one of the practices that maybe people could do, and maybe you can back me up on this, is is sort of identifying when we have realized something instead of deciding something. Uh, like it, one of my first big ones was that um, I had, as a lot of people, I had dated a lot of uh, of women uh, in my life. Not not a crazy amount, um, but I, I had dated. I had dated a healthy amount. I had been on dates and had girlfriends and things, and and had relationships where I was really like forcing myself to decide, is this going somewhere? Cause I always knew I wanted to have children and I, I, I wanted to get married. That was just me. Uh, and just forcing myself to make this decision in a pros and cons way. And then when I, when I was finally with um, my wife, um, I had to admit that I just realized that I wanted to marry her. Right because there had been an ex there had been enough experiential like there had been a trust that developed that you couldn't you couldn't put your finger on exactly why and you know who knows maybe a pros and cons list depending on my mood at the time would have resulted in um in her not being the choice you know my my intellect uh taking over my left brain as ian mcgilchrist yeah. would and say those like those societal expectations taking mm -hmm. over as well because you know there is an expectation that the right thing to do is buy a house and live in it for 30 years or yeah. or, or marry or, or and and these are expectations that are that are placed on us as people as well and, mm -hmm. and it's interesting how you said you just knew but you don't know and that's right. the magic yeah and i think and there's no room for people i think people who who go through self-realization in a way or or have these moments of just doing something and, and not really understanding why there doesn't seem to be a space for that in modern society yeah yeah and, and children oh sorry oh sorry. and in terms of children as well you know as adults there's this idea and 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 also in research as well that children don't have capabilities or they don't have capacities uh, uh, you know the way that adults do and that's a lot of traditional childhood development theory is is that children are a child is only a child because it's going to turn into an adult right. you know without recognizing that the child is life the child is the child is the child we, yeah. we should we, we need to stop looking at the child as becoming adult right you know which is what we do an awful yeah. lot of and we don't we don't need to look. In fact, I don't know if it's good to look at the adult as no longer containing that child, you know, as having transcended that child rather than being, uh, you know, a, a continuation of that of that child's life. You know, there's that 
I think it's a Beach Boys song, the, the child is father to the man. Um, and it's it's so interesting. And I think children do experience those realizations. Sometimes you have, a, you, you know, a child will be very adamant about something. Um, I have extremely adamant children. And uh, your your adult brain wants to put on them that they decided that and that they are just sticking to their decision, you know, because they want it's a power game. Yes. And it's like, well, it's, it, you know, it's so good to be reminded that children do have um, these realizations of knowledge that probably come deeply from their emotions and intuitions um, and their experience and totally bypass the decision-making uh, yeah. part of the brain. Um, and that's yeah. not necessarily even an unhealthy thing. It's not. And it, it puts me in mind of that poem. It's one of my Favorite, well, it probably is my favorite poem by Khalil Gibran. Mm -hmm. uh, I hope I've pronounced that correctly. I don't know. Khalil, Khalil Gibran. I've I, seen I the name, but I'm not going <laughs> to. Yeah, I, and, and I, may be, I may be pronouncing it really incorrectly, but it, it's it is it's a poem about children, and it's your children and not your children. That you know, they are life's longing for itself. But you know that the whole poem embraces that idea of that of. You know, these are beings in their own right. They are, they are the sons and daughters of life. And you know, as parents, and it's really, it's really challenging. You know, I'm a parent too, and you know, we're always torn between thinking we have to do this. You know, we have to get them an education. We have to do this, and, and we know what's best because an element of that is we want to keep them safe. You know, and we have that that parenting instinct almost mm -hmm. to, to do that. And again, it's about balancing that with with parenting in presence almost. Mm. So being, and it sounds like you are, and you, you know, you you're being keenly aware of. Well, actually, <laughs> I hope. Is, is, are they are these children being defiant, or you know, is this a really strong feeling in them that, that this is right for them? Mm -hmm. And but yeah. it makes us feel uncomfortable. Oh, it's it's difficult. It's so difficult. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'm in I'm in the thick of it. You know, I have a baby, and then a five year old, and an eight year old, uh, and I'm trying to take all of these opportunities. Uh, these conversations on the podcast help. I'm trying to take these opportunities to to just look at them as their own uh, person and describe it. You know, when I'm talking to maybe one child about the behavior of the other child, be like, well, you know she's going through something right now and we don't understand exactly why she's doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm slowly grinding into gear, but, um, I, uh, one of the things that, that keeps coming up in my mind as you're speaking, it's not directly related to what we just said, but is that some of these non-normal, non-normal, or I can't remember how you describe them, these experiences that don't fit, with what we're told a human being is supposed to experience. Um, one of the big barriers that you must run up against is this kind of oddly um, immature uh, attitude that people have when they hear these things that, well, I know where that ends up. You know, I know where that ends up. Uh, and, and like, you know, I, I, I posted, I've, I've been through the process of having, the, the, this podcast is, is actually me, uh, trying to live um, a lot of the things that have been on my mind and trying to like live them because the, I, I had an intuition that another uh, another um, entity was almost created in conversation when it in, in good. So this is this is me trying to do that. Um, but um, um, 
Oh man, I lost my train of thought there. That's unusual. <laughs> well, you were talking. I think you were asking me about the the challenges. Oh, oh, right. The, the, the work. Yeah. Right. So one of the things. Right. Okay. Sorry, I'm back on my narrative now. Whew, here we go. Uh, so one, I use my uh, I use my Facebook uh, wall as a way to um, throw out um, ideas of, of promoting uh, basically openness and uh, and promoting like questioning of some basic things, you know, and I, I'll make them as short as I can. And one of them was that I, I said, I no longer believe that there's no validity in astrology or something as it was something as basic as that. And uh, it didn't say I believe everything about astrology. I was just, you know, there must, I was, there must be something to astrology kind of thing. And some of the responses were, were wonderful. And then other ones were like, uh, someone literally said, well, science has clearly and and objectively disproven any validity to those. You know, not a link, no link to the research. I'm sure he probably could have. I mean, it's a decent, nice guy, but I'm sure he could have probably provided a link. But it's like this was the attitude is that um, when you say astrology, you mean that reading the newspaper and your, um, you know, and 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 basing your activities for the day or for the week off of what you see in the newspaper for your astrological sign. And it's like, well, that's, the, you know, so there's this massive gap, this massive leap from the initial impulse that like, oh my goodness, these giant celestial bodies are creating huge fields, you know, one of which is actually holding us physically down to the earth, you know, is sucking us all towards the center of this planet. We've got these massive fields, they're all moving around. Uh, and and they, you know, the, the moon's presence moves our oceans and creates tides, all of these huge forces. But we as human beings, like, you know, rather than thinking maybe we as human beings are, are affected by these massive electromagnetic and gravitational forces and stuff. It's like, no, no, you're you're talking about some woo woo thing that has been disproven by some scientists with an axe to grind. So. I don't know. That must be something that you deal with a lot in your. Yeah. Well, yes and no. And, and I think a, a large part of it is down to how you frame it as well, because, you know, I work in, in a mainstream university um, in a social work department as well. So it is very mainstream and I have lovely colleagues. Um, and I think if, I think if, if you go in there and say, well, you know, I, I'm going to go out today and, and talk to someone who speaks to their dead grandparent, for example, that's not going to go down very well, <laughs> you know. So for me, it's always about how are you framing these things. And I think the very fact that the the whole research is, is not just about anomalous experiences or non-ordinary experiences, it's always pinned to the idea of we don't know what we are it is an absolute mystery so this is about exploring who we are and in that it's it's it has to involve exploring experience and guess what children young people are having all these experiences they're really common not only that and this isn't research this is again this is a sense from from someone who's worked with children for a very long time has children and is continually around children probably too much um but there's a real sense that there's an increase in these experiences as well so i mm. think it's always how you frame it and 
and, and I've, I've learned now to become very attuned to who I'm speaking to. So if I'm speaking to someone who's very open, I can just say it as it is and say, look, you know, you know, and this is what we're doing. And But if it's someone who, who is um, maybe not so open or who has very stringent ideas about science or then, you know, just meander mm. with it. But staying to, with your truth, but just trying to reframe it. Because, mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's fair, and I, I think I've done that too. I think I was conditioned actually to do that in uh, in my conservative religious upbringing, in a way, because uh, you, uh, I've always felt quite open, and 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 I almost became too good at at, uh, at disguising who I really was. But I guess it's uh, I love that you're saying. Um, I love that you're saying that we we don't know who we are and that we are are trying to determine who we are. And I don't get the sense that you're feeling like we're working towards a a unity of this is you know of saying in in, in exact terms this is what we are and kind of pinning it down. Um, one yeah. of the things one of the things that seems healthier is if if you have to choose between I know who I am and I don't know who I am. I think that that's the biggest shift that I think would help society. I mean, I hate to make broad statements like that, but that if if you could get a lot of people to shift to where it was a more, even just that it was a more attractive idea that I don't know who I am than yeah. the idea that I know exactly who I am. Even if that that subtle, I mean, it's a. I think it's a fundamental massive shift. It, it really is. It's also a very frightening shift for many people as well. And, um, I, you know, as human beings, we can we can be so anchored to our ego and, and to our story, especially in a world that's just undergoing m massive upheaval. There's lots of frightening things happening, lots of instability. You know, as humans, we can grasp onto that more as an anchor. And, it, and, it, and it's very hard to let that go. But I, I yeah. totally agree. I think that if if we actually all went, okay, hands up, we don't know what we are. We, right. Never mind, we don't know who we are. We don't know what we are. Yeah, yeah. And, well, let's... and let's 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 explore it together. Yeah. And and there are ways we can explore it together. That doesn't mean that we could ever get um, a legitimate answer on right. for me because you know we're having a human experience and it is dual and it is conceptual and. For me, we are limited in terms of, you know, the the mind on the level of the conceptual mind, I'd, I'd say. So I don't think we cert certainly get some some big answers from the way that we do things now. But I think you're right, Aaron, and I think just starting from I have no idea is the best place to start, as scary sure. as it is or it can be. But it's also very liberating as totally. well. It could yeah. even be that this time of of increasing uh, psychic crisis, or this this time where where so many people are feeling uh, kind of even even just mentally oppressed in ways that they can't put into words, based on the pandemic and based on the polarization of society and all that. It almost is the people in uh, the people who in are in crisis who might be more uh, apt to finally say i don't understand myself and these things that i've been trying to do 
that were based on my rock solid understanding of myself aren't working. So maybe try some new things. And then the next switch that is so enjoyable is the feeling that there's potentials, right? So there's there's damage that we're able, that we're capable of doing that we, that is, you know, beyond what we even understand. And then you can realize that there's, there's potential and, and good that is undiscovered. Because if you know yourself to a certainty and you're just doing bad things and you've done bad things and you're leaving a trail of broken relationships behind you and all that, but you also know yourself well, what, what is the, you know, you're just completely hemmed in. And yeah, that's, that's that's right, Aaron. It's, it is. It's closing yourself in all the time. It's it's almost like you're contracting in and and becoming this idea of a separate self in a way. And and that that's where the freedom is when you you you're open to possibilities. And yeah. and, and that almost seems to be a flaw in that. And mm. it, and it is. And I think when we when we do start to try to define self in any way. It, it does shut that down, but also it, it's difficult not to do that as human right. beings, and we're having this experience that is that again is is has the appearance of duality and has the appearance of separateness for right. lots of reasons, probably. Um, yeah, and you can yeah. enjoy that sense of of duality, and and there is a like I I do think there's a, a an inability that people have to. Um, like the idea of no self or the self not actually existing is so disturbing to people that I think maybe that's one thing that needs to be discussed a bit more. What, you know, what that kind of thing would even mean. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, we're at an hour here and this is great. I feel like based on what you're um, researching, I, I feel like I could, I could have a lot of these conversations with you, but I think that's probably a good place to, uh, to end up. And, uh, is there anything, I guess, is there, what would you like, uh, for people who are interested in this, where would you like for them to go and, and do like, you've got your, your website, um, a children's self anomalous, ex children's self and anomalous experiences.co.uk. I need to change that. That I need to change the address for that. But it's called a children's guide to the unknown, mm. um, and it's been kind of co-created with some of the young people who are part of the first project as a space for information and support. But also, you know, there's lots of things on there. So we have guest blogs um, from different people. Um, um, we've got Steve Taylor on there at the moment, who's wrote some really nice poems for young people. Um, so it's about information and we've got some organisations on there now that can, all different ones we've got, um, I can't remember at the minute, I'm really sorry, but yeah, have a look. And we've we've also got, um, so Bernardo Castrop actually um, did a Q&A session with some children um, and a oh. video, yeah, it was lovely. And they really grilled him because the other thing is children as philosophers and, you know, children have these big questions and they certainly can't ask them in school, you know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Wow. so, yes, it was very lovely of him. And he, he dedicated some time and there was a few children. I think the youngest was four, kept him on his toes, asked him some questions. So we've got a video soon that will be on the website. Oh, great. Yeah, I'll definitely yeah, be watching yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And some fantastic deep questions, um, 
that 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 you know children ask these really deep philosophical questions they are natural philosophers um mm-hmm. so it's hoping to capture some of that yes yeah, so wow. yeah great yeah uh, oh, awesome oh, it will also have the uh, uh, the questionnaire on with um you know rupert sheldrake's research around uh, the sense of being stirred at so that will hopefully next week we'll have a questionnaire on there as well that that people can fill in Great. Well, I, I'll definitely link to the website uh, in, in the description on well, like on the YouTube and then uh, the audio one um, for the for the sake of the audio listeners. Um, I guess I'll say that uh, URL one more time, or or maybe you're better at saying it than I am. Oh no, I don't have it in front of me. Aaron. Okay, childrenselfandanomalousexperiences.co uk and you could also probably google a children's guide to the unknown um yeah you could also access it as i originally did through the essentia foundation uh through your profile on the essentia foundation website where i was just totally enamored with your article uh, rethinking identity children's experiences of self and just from my perspective i think that um, even though you're working with children, uh, I think this research is this research and this way of thinking is so important. And I really, I really hope to um, help promote this this type of thing through the podcast in any way I can because I think it's just crucial. Thank um, you, Aaron. And just to add to that as well, so in terms of some of the independent studies, I'm actually going to be doing this with a group of veterans soon. So these are adults. Uh, veterans who are going to be involved in in some similar research as well. So lost on that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, So thank you so much again for being here. It was such a pleasure to meet you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. No problem. 